The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. My number one album. Big shocker to me. Also folklore. Whoa. Are you ready to dive into all things Taylor Swift? Good for a Weekend is the ultimate podcast for any Swiftie. With new episodes dropping bi-monthly, as well as bonus episodes to give you real-time reactions to the latest rumors and news, it's your one-stop shop for all things T-Swift. We also love connecting with our fellow Weekenders, so be sure to connect with us on Instagram, Twitter, and or Discord to share all your Taylor thoughts. Good for a Weekend is available wherever you get your podcasts. I know. Folklore just is that. Like, it's a perfect album. Well, hello, hello! It's the Spark Parade, a show where I talk to amazing people about the art and culture that's shaped their lives. I'm Adam Unz. So lovely to uh, see you, be heard by you. Hmm, that needs some workshopping. Anyway, today is the day, folks. What day is that, you say? Why, it's the day that you get to hear my conversation with actor, writer, journalist, and all-around renaissance man, James Kleinman, about his love for the 1980 Christopher Reeve-starring classic film, Superman 2. If you like superheroes, or blockbuster films, or digging into the history of superhero blockbuster films, then this is the episode for you! Also, a little production note... There will be no new episode next week. Wait! Don't cry. It's only one week. It's Thanksgiving in America, you see. I'm not a religious person, but I get very enthusiastic about food. And Thanksgiving is quite a food holiday. So I'm going to eat my way through the week. And then there will be a new episode the week after that. Yay! In the meantime, though, I want to talk a little bit about what scares me. What kind of fucking stupid idea is that, Uns? Halloween just happened. Why didn't you talk about this then? I know, I know, but just leave me alone, okay? I do what I want, when I want. Capiche? So, anyway, I'm thinking about scary stuff because of a movie I saw, which I'll talk about at the end of the episode, but I really love being scared by art. I love horror movies and horror TV shows and books and paintings and anything else that's scary. In London, there's a horror film festival every August called Fright Fest, and I used to go every year. And one year, I got a pass for the whole weekend and saw like 25 films in four days and only ate McDonald's. I would not do that again. But the point is, I'm committed to the genre. Lately, though, the two kinds of horror that have appealed to me the most are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Horror that is abstract and bizarre, and on the other side, horror that is grounded in reality. We'll focus on the weird stuff later on, but what is it about the really realistic stuff that draws me in? One of the great appeals of horror is meant to be the relief that you feel when it's over. The exhilaration of making it through the ordeal, and the distance that you can create between yourself and the artwork because it's just pretend. You may have lingering anxiety about the monster under the bed, but you just need to keep reminding yourself that it isn't real. But what about horror that is so grounded in reality that it's entirely plausible? I'm a big fan of a horror novelist named Paul Tremblay, and his horror falls into that category. 
There are possible supernatural elements in his books, but there's always an alternate real-world explanation. He likes to joke about being one of the masters of the ambiguous horror genre, but I think that's a pretty apt description. The real horror in his books comes from the unknown. He leaves so much to his readers' imaginations, and it leaves me with this sense of unease that lasts for weeks after I finish one of his books. It happens in films, too. Trey Edward Schultz is an incredible director. His movie Waves is going to be released soon, and that's gotten rave reviews. And his first film, Cretia, which I've spoken about before, is kind of a family drama and kind of a horror movie, all rolled into one. But his second film, It Comes at Night, is absolutely horrifying. It's harrowing, and there's some really upsetting things that happen, but again, the horror is based on totally plausible situations and people making terrible decisions out of necessity as a means of protecting the people they love. And that film has tons of ambiguity as well. There are unknown elements with potentially supernatural explanations, but it's all left up to the viewer's interpretation. So why do I enjoy that kind of horror? It seems like it's the most upsetting kind. The kind you can't shake off or explain away easily. And the answer is, I don't really know. In a world that's so full of real-life horror, you'd think that I would do anything to avoid additional upset, but I don't. I'm a sucker for it. Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, maybe I'm just not right in the head, but the scary things I'm most drawn to are the ones that are inescapable. The ones I'm most afraid of coming true. Dun dun dun! There you go. Spooky Thanksgiving. It's my new thing. And now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's move on to my chat with James Kleinman about Superman 2. So, Superman 2. Where to begin? What, how do you remember seeing it for the first time? Were you a child? Yes. Yeah, so the first time I saw it, or at least the first time I can remember sitting, um, seeing it, is sitting in my lounge with probably quite seventies decor, uh, still red velvet striped wallpaper and red velvet um, sofas. <laughs> in the lounge um, and I believe the first time I saw it I may have been taken to the cinema but I don't remember that and I would have been very very young was the first time I remember seeing it was on, on our uh, VHS recording from television mm-hmm. with all the adverts still in place <laughs> <laughs> and when I watch it now I can still remember because I've watched it so many times as a child where the adverts came in <laughs> And even what some of the adverts were, definitely for Superman the movie, for the original, I can remember that there was a sort of a no smoking advert where <laughs> um, there was there was a villain called Nicotine or something like that who was trying to encourage children to smoke and Superman came and like crushed the packet and he was some sort of yellow figure because he'd smoke, um, smoke too much. <laughs> so that's one advert I can remember really, really clearly from, from the first movie. So yes. there were like... Superman-centric adverts to get yeah. in. That's amazing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And something that um, I just read about to do with the t- TV broadcast, which I wasn't aware of, and I don't know whether it was the same in the UK where I would have seen it, but in the US, the Salkins, who were the producers of Superman 1 through 4, charged did this deal where they charged the networks per minute so they actually made the films longer for the tv broadcasts Mm -hmm. and the first time superman the movie was shown on us tv it was actually split over two nights just so they could get the most money from it oh my god but i think in the uk i don't think it was the same thing because i think the you know itv that i would have watched it on uh just would have had a lot more adverts and that's why it was longer and i think if anything they cut bits out 
because mm-hmm. when I you know saw it on DVD, I was like, oh, I've never seen that before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, like even now, the number of adverts in um, kind of terrestrial, however Americans refer to that. Uh, I always get stuck with this. This is network like my, TV. Is network thank you TV? very yeah. much. Yeah, that's where I like british uh brain takes over and i i cannot remember the american phrase yes like non-cable non-streaming just turn on the tv yeah yeah (laughs) that's the one um but that kind of tv here is still like so commercial tastic and it feels if you are in the uk and you watch telly there and then come here it feels like it it's 90 percent commercials and you know, ten percent show. Yes, so it takes forever to right. watch a movie. But Australia is actually much worse. Oh, really? I watched Clueless once, and I think it took about three and a half hours. <laughs> and I think that has put me off uh, network or terrestrial TV. Um, and one thing they do in Australia actually is they'll show you maybe thirty or forty minutes uninterrupted, mm-hmm. and then there'll be like two or three commercials. And then as it gets towards the end, there'll be far more commercials than movie. You know, you get like two minutes of movie, and then about ten minutes of commercial. <laughs> So, like, as your interest uh, increases, so do the adverts. Exactly. Like, uh, and you think, oh, well, I've stayed with it now. I might as well watch it. But yeah. <laughs> so cruel and sneaky. Um, but they know what they're doing. Yes. Like, <laughs> um, so, yeah. I, and I remember that as a kid as well. Like, we didn't have cable or anything. We did, I, I, At home, if we were watching movies on TV that we hadn't rented... It was exactly that situation where it was like constant commercials, constant interruption, and really just watching it in fits and starts. And with Superman 2, I mean, that was before you could eat, you know, before video stores as well. I think it was about four, five at the most, probably about four. So, and, and, you know, so you couldn't, you definitely couldn't purchase a video, but you Mm. couldn't even rent one at that stage. So it was the only option. But one thing that our family used to do, actually, and I'm sure a lot of people used to do it as well, would be sort of jump up and press pause if you were recording it and watching it at the same time. So when the commercials came up, you press pause and then you press, you know, record again. So you didn't actually have the commercials. Right. So that was always really nice if someone had done that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like with recording uh, songs off of the radio as well mm-hmm. that, you know, I, I remember knowing that songs that I really loved that were popular, that were probably going to be on the radio and just sitting there like waiting for the song to start and if the dj would say that the song was going to start that they were going to play it that would be amazing to have that cue but sometimes you just have to like rush and you know press record and the same thing with the tv like all of these creative uh editing options (laughs) when uh before you know the digital age came in i kind of at least with like making mixtapes and things like that i I kind of miss it. It was a pain in the ass and it was something that really took a lot of your time and energy, but it felt more like you were making something and a playlist is just like, oh, anybody can do that. I was really good at making mixtapes. I was good at mixtapes and I always used to like to throw in a few random ones. I remember um, having quite cool music on one that I did for someone or music that I thought was cool when I was about 14 or something, but then throwing in... um, a song from Greece and that sort of been, <laughs> been quite weird uh, in, in the mix. I'm trying to think which um, oh, which song is it? I'm trying to think of the, the character as well. The the one where she is saying, so what if I'm a slut, essentially? What song is that? You know the one um, I mean? <laughs> from the original Greece. Uh, if it was there Greece are worse too, things I could do. There were worse things I could do, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
And if, so I, prefer, I prefer your alternate title. So what if I'm a slut? So what if, otherwise known as, so what if I'm a slut? Yeah, Stockard Channing's number, which is one of my favorites from Grease, actually. See, if it was Grease 2, I would have had the song on the tip of my tongue because I know that one as well as I know Superman 2, probably. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're in the Red Velvet Land uh, living room. And I mean, like... With things like this, I'm sure you can't remember specifically like the first time that you saw it. But, you know, these are the movies that when you're a kid, like you obsess over them and watch them a hundred million times and, you know, know them by heart and can recite dialogue and all that kind of stuff. So was there something about this, about Superman 2 as compared to any of the other Superman films that really stuck out for you? Well, I guess by the time when I first saw it, it would have only been the second one. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess it's a bit more fun than the first one. Mm. The first one is a little bit more serious because it has all the origin story stuff and mm-hmm. you know, um, with Marlon Brando and even the plot as well is probably a little bit more serious because a lot of the world gets destroyed or blown up towards the end and then you know he has to spin the, the world um, backwards and it's a bit longer. So I think as a child two would have just appealed more as it's a bit more fast paced. It doesn't have any of that, the origin story stuff to set up. You already know that. And it goes straight in, straight in with the, the action. Mm-hmm. So I think that was probably one reason. And also the, the other thing is there probably weren't all that many um, VHSs of any movies lying around. Right. So, you know, when I thought about this, this one, I was thinking, was it just partly because that was a movie that was lying around, but I don't think, I think it was more than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or maybe a combination. Yeah. Or a combination. Yeah. yeah. But I, and I also used to get up, uh, very early before school and maybe watch a whole movie. I remember, definitely remember doing that with the Wizard of Oz a few times. Mm. And I would have done it with Superman 2 and Superman 3. And I think even as a very young child, whenever Superman 3 came out a few years later, I knew that it was just a bit silly. Mm-hmm. and goofy and quite fun but it wasn't anywhere near as good as the first two and that's before i would have had any kind of analytical language or just known it's like oh it's just not as good or you know what i mean and then four i think you know i really wanted to like that and i remember going to see that in the cinema in coventry and the car radio was stolen when we got back to the car actually i remember, <laughs> remember that quite clearly and i knew that it wasn't very good oh you know mm. i was disappointed as what a, a 10 year old or a bit younger perhaps about eight no. so you know, and I think one of the reasons as well why the second one is so good is because of the the work done by the first movie. Mm-hmm. And I think another comic book movie that I like that's similar is Tim Burton's Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. And I think that one overall is a bit more entertaining. Again, the first one's a bit more serious, mm-hmm. but Batman Returns wouldn't be as good if you hadn't had Batman first. And I think Superman 2 is the same. It's not necessarily a better movie, but I think it's more entertaining to watch yeah but because of all the sort of world building and the characterization that's been built up in in the first movie yeah and it's funny that like with the first two batman movies it was the same director and it was tim burton kind of maybe having more creative license and the ability to be a little bit more to be a bit freer and to to play with stuff a bit more because he'd had the success of the first one and with superman it was like Richard Donner had directed the first one. That was his tone was like, this is serious stuff. And we have yeah. to treat it like something, you know, like Shakespearean. It's, he wanted to be reverential right. to this great American character. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, there's this whole saga. They were shooting the first two parts back to back. And 
they he was fighting Richard Donner was fighting with the producers and they halted production and then it was like two years before they came back to it. So there's all these weird kind of continuity errors and people look different. It's very interesting. And I mean, I wouldn't have known any of that as a child when I first came to it. And then looking back on it now, yeah. So Richard Lester Mm -hmm. was brought in towards the end of the making of Superman, the movie. As you say, that Richard Donner had been shooting both movies simultaneously. So they would shoot whatever they needed for Superman, the movie on the same set. So say like Superman's home. And then they would shoot what they needed for the sequel Mm -hmm. on the the same. But anyway, then, yeah, when Richard Lester came in and, as you say, a couple of years later, picked up and used that um, some of the footage from the first one, but had to reshoot um, at least, well, had to have directed at least 50% of the movie in order Mm -hmm. to have his name on the film. Yeah. And really with something like that. And then Gene Hackman refused to come back because he was loyal to Richard Donner and he didn't want to come back. So if you watch it now, you can really clearly see Gene Hackman's character, Lex Luthor, shot from behind mm-hmm. and it's not him. Yeah. And also it's not his voice. But I mean, as a child, I wouldn't have picked up on that. And I think, and, and even as an adult, I think unless you know and you're really looking out for that, you, you know, you, you wouldn't see that either. Yeah. But all sorts of people didn't come back for the second one. But I'm, I think at least 40% of the original footage shot by Richard Donner is in... Superman 2, the mm-hmm. version that we know. Yeah. And that has a different production designer and a different cinematographer, right. for instance, to the um, the rest of it, the other 60% that Richard mm. Les- Lesser shot, because they had both died, the cinematographer and the production designer in between, Right. you know, in, in the intervening years. So all of that stuff's very interesting. And you would think it would be a mess. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think one of the reasons that it's not a mess is... You know, I mean, Richard Lester and Richard Donner were both safe pairs of hands and they're, you know, great directors. And there must have been um, a lot of backstage stuff going on with, uh, you know, fights with the producers and all that kind of thing. But yeah, so they were good. They also had a lot of great people working on it. But also, I think it's the performances. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. and Gene Hackman is so good that it doesn't even matter that it's not him a couple of times. Right, right. <laughs> and in the version that we know, but obviously Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder and mm. Terrence Stamp, yeah, Sarah yeah, Douglas yeah. Yeah. are all so good in it. And I, I think I, you know, even as a kid, appreciated that they were, how great their performances were. And weirdly, looking back, I can remember once I knew that they were actors, I found that very exciting. And I think that was one of the sort of sparks that made me think, oh, yeah, is that a job? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I quite like to do that then if it is and be like Christopher Reeve. You know? Right, yeah. Um, and that's the the uh, uh, comparison that I was trying to make sloppily and uh, taking way too oh, long Batman. to, Sorry. to yeah. get back to that. Mm, yeah, I, yeah. Um, was just that, you know, that was Tim Burton kind of changing the way he, uh, shifting shifting the tone of, yes, of for the films. Sequel. And with this, it was like Richard Lester has talked about the fact that his idea of what Superman should be was much lighter and goofier and he wanted to inject a lot of humor into it. And, you know, he'd been around for the entire production. He was, he was part of it for um, almost the whole thing. And even though he didn't direct the first one, he was, 
he overseeing was involved. Wasn't he? he was kind of like a go-between um, between Richard Donner and the producers, wasn't he? Right, when they stopped right. talking and yeah, very yeah. involved. Yeah. So he, you know, he was aware of what the tone of the first one was and how that was created. And he wanted to do something completely different. And so like the opening and the ending were his, um, those were added for the new version, like all the stuff in the Eiffel Tower. And, yes. Um, I don't know, spoiler alert. Uh, no, I don't, 40 I think years later. Yeah, I think if it came out in 1980, yeah, we don't, uh, <laughs> yeah. We don't need a spoiler alert. Um, but uh, <laughs> Superman kind of giving the magic kiss to Lois Lane to make her forget that yes. he's Superman um, or that Clark Kent is Superman. That was his added at the end as well. Um, so all of that lightness, I think, uh, really appealed to people and made people feel like you know, a lot of the reviewers thought it was better than the first one and that it had, you know, taken the ideas in the first one and improved on them by injecting this, uh, you know, entertainment like yes. lightness, um, which is uh, what people really love about it or one but, of the things. And then I think it. that's why when we get Superman three, which is completely Richard Lester's, mm-hmm. then it is even more goofy and still it's just a comedy really. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Superman almost plays second fiddle to Richard Pryor's character mm-hmm. in some ways who's, you know, yeah. out and out comedy, but it, it is still quite entertaining, but it's, yeah. It's nowhere near the first two, I think. Yeah. So maybe it was the marriage between the the two yeah. Richards together and made that magic. Yeah. I mean, it's something that used to happen quite regularly is that, you know, I think The Wizard of Oz has got multiple directors, maybe three directors. I think Gone with the Wind has got a, two directors. But in, in the old days when the studio system was really going, it wasn't necessarily, you know, they were there to do their job, but it wasn't this kind of auteur idea and the director sort of didn't have their name like above the film quite so much as they do now. So mm. it's not sort of hugely unusual, but it's, yeah. And it's interesting when it, when it does ha- happen now and you hear about it happening before the movie comes out, obviously like Bohemian Rhapsody mm-hmm. uh, recently with Dexter Fletcher sort of taking over from Brian Singer, but obviously the percentage that they did or that he did wasn't quite enough for the names to switch or however that worked out, mm-hmm. maybe some, some legal things. Uh, and I think there's another example of one that w- worked out well. I mean, I, I liked the movie, but before you go in, you sort of think, oh dear, this, yeah, as I say with Superman, <laughs> mm-hmm. could, could have ended up being a bit of a mess, but it's not. And it, it does happen with some movies, um, I think, where it, it's not successful because a second director has been brought on. Yeah, know. yeah. And in addition, like I, all of those potential problems, not just the directors, but as you said, various crew members dying, various crew members not wanting to come back to work with a a different director, Marlon Brando being a massive queen and wanting to, you know, demanding more money. Well, they hadn't paid him his money, I think. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because he was down to get 11% of the box office takings or the the profit, however, however it was, from the first movie and the second movie, and as well as whatever it was up front. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the, the, the dollar amount that, that he got front, but because they really wanted Marlon Brando and I think Marlon Brando kind of came first mm-hmm. and then everything else kind of fell into place. So they thought, okay, we'll have Marlon Brando, we'll spend a lot on this first one and then we'll just spend less money as we go on. But then, yeah, as you say, because he took them to court, they're like, okay, well, mm-hmm. they, I think they settled and they're like, but you just won't be in the next one. So they yeah. kind of cut him out. Yeah, and it's, so it's Superman's mom rather than his dad. Um, yeah. So you even have Superman shouting in Superman 2, father! Yeah. But of course he doesn't, we know he's not going to appear because <laughs> Marlon Brando isn't in this one. Yeah. I think uh, Susanna York plays the mum. And I think it works well. And again, like if you don't know all the ins and outs, I guess people probably would have known the Marlon Brando stuff at the time. Yeah. I mean, I didn't as a four or five year old, but and maybe, you know, maybe that would have meant something to them. But as you say, the reviews were pretty good at the time, weren't they? Mm. And people 
didn't really, you know, we had Marlon Brando in the first one. He didn't really need to be in the second one. Yeah. And it was quite a nice sort of mother-son relationship, which you don't see that much in movies. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Marlon Brando sued for like 500 squizillion dollars <laughs> and ended up getting 1.5 million. So He's good in the first yeah. one. But there, yeah. are, there are stories about him having the lines written down on different bits mm-hmm. of props as well, aren't there? You know, yeah. That he didn't oh, <laughs> retain his few, his few <laughs> yes. lines. But... Yeah, but it, you know, as long as it looks um, like he's uh, speaking the words and he's the character, that that's what you need to do, really. Yeah, he did uh, get increasingly uh, less interested in kind of doing the job himself uh, without any special assistance in his uh, in his later years. I think that was probably he was only like maybe in his fifties at that time. I'd say. Yes, um, and there's a brilliant documentary actually where it's just using audio of Marlon Brando, hmm? which I highly recommend and do n- cannot recall the name of right now. But it's I think it's around 90 minutes, and it's yeah, so it's just his voice and then photographs of Marlon, no talking heads or anything like that. But it's a brilliant documentary, and you come away with well, if you liked him already, you'll like him even more. And if you are not so keen, then it you'll, it would win you over. Hmm. It's really impressive. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um. But the cast that did stick around for the second one, um, you know, the, I think, three major players being Christopher Reeve, Margot Kidder, and Gene Hackman, all giving their... And Terrence Stamp. Yeah, and and Terrence Stamp, yeah. I mean, and when he was still quite a looker and, you know, just like had this... Again, I, I mean, I think maybe that might, might be part of Richard Donner's influence as well, but that was this like almost Shakespearean uh, performance that it's this very grand sort of stagey villain. Yes. Um, it's big, but it's kind of grounded in the character, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because you, you can imagine that the character would be quite grand and theatrical. Yeah. It kind of works a bit like, um, there's a recent example I've just seen Dr. Sleep. And Rebecca Ferguson is a little like that in her character mm-hmm. in Doctor Sleep, where it's, have you, have you seen yeah, it too? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Where, you know, it's, it's big and it's theatrical and it's a little bit camp, but you believe it. Yeah. 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 Because you feel like it's coming from the character. Right. And uh, yeah, but G- General Zod is, he's very scary, I think, very menacing, but, you know, children can cope with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you just think, oh, is this gonna be a bit too scary for children? But uh yeah, and I think all yeah, all of his work is really grounded. And the same for Sarah Douglas as Ursa mm-hmm. as well. And they have kind of a double act. I mean, really she just loves him and he kind of ignores her completely. He's not really that interested, apart from just having her around as a kind of lapdog to do some stuff but yeah. he, he doesn't really care he just wants super, people to kneel in front of him and superman to kneel in front of him mm-hmm. which also <laughs> i hadn't really thought about before but when i was thinking about uh do, doing this podcast like is there something homoerotic going on in all this obsession <laughs> yeah. of yeah. him wanting there's any men as well he just wants men to kneel yeah. in front of him yeah. possibly yeah yeah <laughs> that sounds like a, a good graduate thesis for a yes, student exactly um but not uh just going back to like the the performances from all of the villains, but I think across the board, they're another key element, I think, in addition to the humor and uh, balancing the humor with the kind of more weighty, serious tone of the first one is this overarching 
campness that just bleeds through the whole thing. And part of it is just it's of its time, you know, the way that the special effects were designed. It was like that was what the technology was at the time. But just thinking of like the way that the villains die and it's kind of falling um, uh, that seems quite silly and maybe also using that to keep the scariness in check because yes. it was a film that was supposed to be you know uh, available to everyone you wanted to yes. have the widest audience possible and having villains who are menacing but not too menacing yes and that's something that actually changed if you look you know they, they did release the richard donner cut in mm. 2006 so you can they sort of piece together surviving bits and screen tests and so it's not the most satisfying thing to watch but mm-hmm. yeah there were examples in that like there's uh, a little boy in houston that gets killed by ursa mm. and in the version that we all know the richard lester version you know the, the little boy is sort of there and he's in danger but it's actually just the father that gets um thrown up into the air and you don't really see anyone die i don't think you just you, you know you see a helicopter explode mm-hmm. and yeah obviously um and, and it hits a house or something like that but in the original version i think you actually pretty much saw the child die which is probably a bit too yeah. horrific to yeah. have in this uh, in the movie so there were some sort of changes like that but yeah and, and the performances so um again they they can there are some camp elements in the relationship between lois and christopher reeve um, mm. playing um clark kent a lot of that stuff is kind of quite camp isn't it but i believe the love story between them and again they're such great performers that they really ground everything mm-hmm. and there's a healthy dose of sort of cynicism there i think mm-hmm. not so much with clark kent obviously but definitely with uh, margot kidder's lois lane yeah you know that sort of new yorker thing that she's got and then and because she's a journalist as well mm-hmm. um a little bit like carrie fisher i think as um princess leia in in star wars which i don't know is one of the reasons why we really love those performances i think but also just you know, com- compared with, say, the early, the, 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 these prequels of uh, the Star Wars movies that don't have anyone like that in them. Mm-hmm. And then it all just, I don't know, just isn't as engaging. I think you, you need someone there who's a little <laughs> cynical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, you know, like cynicism and humor combined. And I think some of the newer Star Wars movies have a little bit of an element of humor, but they're too scared about being perceived as not taking themselves seriously and the, I guess, intense focus grouping uh and you know audience research tells them that you know people want star wars to be revered and not something that anybody that there's no room for anyone to have the perception that the actors or the characters are kind of making fun of themselves or that there's levity or that any levity that exists it's like to a point but we really have to take this seriously. And I think, yeah. you know, Superman 2, as we've been saying, it really struck that the correct balance that it's it's a fun movie. It's a big summer blockbuster that everybody, you know, it's going to be this world dominating thing. And it takes the character seriously. It takes the story seriously. But it also isn't afraid of making fun of itself and having really broad light moments as well. So well done to everyone involved. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm sure they were waiting for my seal of approval all this time. And now they finally have it. They can all relax. You're right. It's nearly 40 years as well. Isn't it 40 years next year? Yeah. That it was released in most places. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. What was I going to say about Margot Kidder? Oh, also just uh, the fact that I, I, I felt like it was the right amount of time for her to take to figure out that Clark Kent is Superman. And 
it it was like you know there's an enormous amount of suspension of disbelief because it's fucking clearly the same person he's just wearing a pair of glasses and you kind of have to (laughs) just think of it as like you know superman is this magical alien who can kind of not to mix my genres or mix my um series we're talking more about star wars again but he kind of jedi mind tricks people into thinking that he's not superman when he very clearly is i mean he acts Um, so different though doesn't he as well and you wouldn't suspect him but like you say yeah and physically it is it is just a pair of glasses right but yeah he does look a little bit different but maybe yeah yeah and his like his mannerisms are very different but again it's like i don't actually i don't know i i do kind of um, understand that like I look very different with glasses on and without and I there have definitely been times many many times when people have not recognized me if they only know me yeah with or without and there's glasses. also that thing about like you say he's this magical alien and every everyone sort of is very excited by Superman who although she's seen photographs off she I suppose she hasn't seen you know spent as much time with Shadow of Clark but we don't really look at the people who we see every day that much mm. Mm-hmm. Do we? We sort of, especially in an office, might not even glance up all that much at them, even when you're talking to them. So maybe there's that element too. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. But yeah, in the um, Richard Donner version of the movie, uh, it's pretty much right at the opening of Superman 2, where there's a photograph of him on the cover of the Daily Planet. And she draws a pair of glasses on, on it. And like, oh, <laughs> looks like someone I know. And that's yeah. partly how she shows that she's worked it out. And there isn't any of the, you know, jumping into the water in mm-hmm. Niagara Falls, which is more fun. But yeah. there, there is something with where she shoots him with a blank and he mm. catches it. So that's how she finds out in what Donna shot. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, if anything, it's quite fun having these different extra versions mm-hmm. to see, you know. Yeah. More footage that we've got now. Yeah. But I like the way in the Lester version that it's like she's doing a little bit of detective work. Like yes. they treat her as a smart person that she's testing yes. her hypothesis yeah and that it doesn't take her forever to figure it out and she doesn't second guess herself she's really self-assured and she once she knows what she knows she's just like stop fucking bullshitting me this is yes we are all, like everybody here knows what's going on just yeah. admit it and she's an investigative journalist right. journalist so we need her to start doing that don't we and yeah it's a great character i mean amy adams i think was good in the the first one in man of steel mm-hmm. of the you know more recent incarnation i don't think she got quite as much to do in Batman versus Superman but when she was on screen she was she was good so she was good casting and I didn't mind Man of Steel too much but I think it didn't um just yeah and I, I always love the, the these Christopher Reeve movies especially these first two so mm-hmm. anything else I'll enjoy watching but I've yet to it's yet to be bettered in in my mind I think I think yeah. most people will probably agree with that as, as well yeah and compared to other superheroes to bring it back to Batman again I yeah. think I love the Tim Burton version, but there have been other versions that I've enjoyed as well. And they have been such different takes that it's felt like somebody's really creating a completely different version. Like the Christopher Nolan ones are are completely different, aren't they? Yeah. And and they, you wouldn't really compare them almost. They just stand as separate things. They're trying to do something completely different. Right. And like, I'm, I'm excited to see what Matt Reeves is going to do with it too. Um, But with, Superman, it feels like, I don't know if it's just that it's a more difficult, it's a character that doesn't have as much depth or there's not, it's a, it's a simpler, maybe that's, that's not what I mean. I guess he doesn't have the same darkness mm -hmm. to him. 
Yeah. But that can come from the villains, like in Superman 2. They can be the dark ones. Right. I guess he's conflicted in Superman 2 as well because he goes into that chamber and loses all his powers right. just for <laughs> for Lois. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I noticed when I watched it most recently is, and probably noticed before over the years, but I've forgotten, is that he doesn't consult Lois Lane at all. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So he gets this option of, well, if you want to be with her, you need to just become a normal man and lose all your powers, his mother says, and are you sure? So he goes into that chamber and loses all his powers, and he hasn't even looked back to say, like, oh, shall I do this? So I think, like, that's not a very good beginning of a relationship. Right, is it? right. And, like, <laughs> I did this for you. It's life-changing and permanent. Hope you're happy. <laughs> yes. So I guess the conflict comes from that, doesn't it? And then in Superman 3 he gets turned bad. Mm-hmm. So it's, we know that it's not, no, that's because of the, the red kryptonite or something like that. And mm. we know it's not really Superman because, um, yeah, he's a good person. But I, I think that's the thing you don't necessarily, I mean, that is one way of making him darker and there are ways that you can make him conflicted. But generally he is a very good mm-hmm. not person, uh, Kryptonian <laughs> on yeah. earth. And uh, yeah, I don't think making the character dark like it mm-hmm. has been the trend with superhero movies over, you know, the past decade or so, decade or so really works with him. Yeah. I don't think that's the sort of thing that they should be doing. And I guess Captain America is another one that isn't really a dark character. And yeah, but it feel, I, I feel like the those films have been more successful at having a kind of multi-layered character yeah. who has a, a more complex emotional life. And maybe yeah. that's because that character is human to start with and somebody who like gets superpowers but there's something about the subsequent versions of uh superman that it feels like nobody's really been able to crack how to do a different updated version of no because the 2006 uh i think it's 2006 the brian singer version was pretty much like it was like one of those reboots Mm -hmm. part remake part sequel right it was really a homage to you know, the late seventies, early eighties versions, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it would be interesting to see somebody kind of figure out a way to, to take it on and, and make it their own and have a, a really different version of the character. Yes. That I would see. Yes. I, um, and Smallville is something that I haven't watched. I don't know mm, quite how that works. I know that was sort of the early years really, but before you yeah. become Superman as such, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I'm completely discounting that. So um, <laughs> I, I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen it at all either. So I haven't, um, Maybe that's the that was the secret version. Yeah. That and he appears on the CW, doesn't he? In, in yeah. Supergirl and Lois and Clark. You remember that? Yes. Yeah. I, that, I used I, to love that watched, actually. Yeah. 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 Um, but that was a very different thing. It was more like almost like a sitcom. It wasn't really. Um, yeah. You know, these. I, I'm talking specifically about like the you know big tentpole Superman, but like having a. A brand new, fully realized yeah. version. Um, just re-release these first two, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just see them on the big screen. Stick with uh, what's, yeah. yeah, they still make quite a lot of money if they do that. Yeah. Maybe three D them and put them on IMAX or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have feelings about other superhero franchises as as well? I mean, are there, do you have? Uh, do you enjoy those movies? Do you have favorites? I do enjoy them. I think. The, the ones that we've mentioned, these two Superman movies and the two Batman movies are probably my favorites. And those are the ones that would have opened the window to going to other superhero movies. Obviously, it's so different now because one is released like every three months or something right, like right. that. Uh, and I usually go along slightly reluctantly thinking, oh, God, this is going to be like two and a half hours. But actually end up really enjoying it because generally they're, they're very well done. Mm-hmm. Um 
Suicide Squad, I think, was not as great. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, yeah, we mentioned um, Superman, Batman versus Superman. I, I'm just always happy to see the character, even if it isn't sort of all, all that well done. Mm-hmm. That, that wasn't an, an amazing movie, was it? But, no. um, but I'm, I'm not necessarily you know, a comic book here um movie fan that has to go and see absolutely everything right um I, you know i can miss a few but as i say you know they they're usually really 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 well done um and i don't like have a comic book collection or anything like no. that <laughs> me either yeah i watch a lot of I've, i think i've seen all the marvel movies but it's just like out of habit more than anything else i think yeah um, well it's it's part of the general conversation as well isn't it you, sort mm. of, you know they still are you feel like you maybe need to have seen them because it's most people are talking about them yeah yeah and i do like i I do enjoy them um but it's also part of this like content overload and the marvel tv shows that are coming where it's just like oh my god i i can't handle anymore i don't have enough nobody has enough i don't think anyone has quite enough time you really have to pick and choose and you can't have that feeling of i need to see everything Mm -hmm. because i think that's pretty much impossible now even if you're a professional tv critic yeah i've heard quite a few say they you know they used to be able to review everything and now they just can't see everything maybe you can watch one episode of most things just to get a flavor of it but i think <laughs> there aren't enough hours in the day left anymore with all the especially with new streaming services coming up yeah i was talking to somebody the other day who's a filmmaker and he was saying that uh in the uk there are queues for film crews that people have to wait you know for a window of time when the film crew is available because there's so many things being filmed so many tv shows so many films that it's this enormous boom and it's wonderful for people who are involved in the film industry, but it also is a sign of like, Jesus Christ, there's too much going on. And there's, you know, this bubble's got to burst at some stage. People can't handle this amount of content. I don't know. Well, I suppose it's just uh, the, the audience that it's, that it targets is not necessarily everyone anymore. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's niche yeah. audiences. Mm. So I think it probably can, but it's just different. Yeah. You know, it's just, I, I'm just thinking more in terms yeah. of like, you know, the, streaming um services all launching at the same time and all vying for everybody's attention and i guess the markers of success have changed as well that it's not about the eyes of the entire world on this one thing that it's about finding your niche audience and making sure that it's sizable enough that you know your advertisers are happy or however you make your yeah or your subscribers and yeah yeah and you're not necessarily having they're not necessarily having to release figures right of how many people did watch something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then filmmakers or TV you know, TV makers are just happy to have had the budget. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yes. <laughs> um, I feel very good. I think we have talked about a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm happy. So if people who are listening would like to find out what you are up to, how would they do that? Uh, well, one way they can do that is go to uh, my website, which isn't just my writing, it's uh, several people um, contributing, called thequeerreview.com. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram um, at James Kleinman, K-L-E-I-N-M-A-N-N. And yeah, I will happily say hi to you on there. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, great. Thank you so much. This has been a real a treat thanks very much for having me thanks adam yes all right talk to you soon bye what an incredible man right what an incredible conversation right 
Let's have a little round of applause. Are you doing it? I'm going to trust that you are doing it. Okay. The recommendations for this week. Yay! Firstly, the promised weird horror recommendation. I went to see The Lighthouse, which is the new Robert Eggers movie starring Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe. It is so fucking weird, and I loved it. Robert Eggers, who wrote, directed, and produced it, also wrote and directed The Witch, and a lot of people really loved that. But I kind of found it overhyped and exhausting. The Lighthouse, however... I don't really know what to say. It's like a combination of Eraserhead, Waiting for Godot, and a music video directed by Herb Ritz. It's claustrophobic and bizarre and really beautifully shot. And the, both of the actors are phenomenal. I really love Robert Pattinson's work. I think he has great taste in projects. And I find it really interesting that this enormous movie star gets involved with so much bizarre auteurist shit. So go and see The Lighthouse if you like extreme weirdness. And a more kind of straightforward recommendation is Ryan Johnson's new whodunit movie, Knives Out. It's really light and super duper entertaining. The cast looked like they're having just as much fun as the audience. It's a perfect Thanksgiving movie. It's the kind of movie that I would have seen with my family after Thanksgiving dinner when I was a kid. So go and see Knives Out if you're looking for something a little bit lighter. And there are a few New York gallery shows you should check out if you're here. Richard Serra has a giant piece called Reverse Curve. If you're familiar with his work... He creates a lot of giant, curvy, rusty metal sculptures, and I really like them. And there are a couple of group shows in the Highline 9 galleries, one called A Bridge Between You and Everyone, which is a group exhibition of Iranian women artists. It's curated by Shireen Nishat and organized by the Center for Human Rights in Iran. It's mostly a painting show, but I'll post some pictures on social media and you can get a sense of it. It's really great work, very vivid and emotional. And there's also another group show called The Gag, and that's happening in the same building at the DeBuck Gallery. That one is curated by Devin Shimayama, and it's paintings and mixed media stuff, and it's just like color explosions. It's got so much energy, and I really loved that too. And I will also post pictures of that to social media. And that's it, kids. Those are your recommendations. But speaking of social media, follow me, please, at Spark Parade. And rate and review the show wherever you stream or download it. And that is truly that. Remember, no show next week. Back the following week. Enjoy your time away from me. Be good. Until next time. Bye.